You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, if you want to open your Bibles up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I will open us up in prayer. God, once again, we want to praise you and thank you for your word. God, we're thankful that we can come to it this morning to learn more about you, to learn more about your plans, to learn more about where history is going. God, we're thankful this morning that we serve a sovereign creator who is completely in control. God, we praise you for your wisdom, for your goodness. God, it would be a fearful thing to know that there was a all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God who was evil. So, Father, we praise you for your goodness this morning, knowing that everything that you do is for your glory and for the good of your children. God, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would teach us today the Holy Spirit would encourage, convict, and give us direction for our coming weeks and knowing how to live in light of your return. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we wrapped up chapter 4 last week. um, And we move into chapter 5 this week. But I want to start by reading in chapter 4. Because as we said, in the original context, it was not divided up into chapters and verses. So if, if I was the pastor of the church at Thessalonica and we received this letter from Paul, we would be reading and we would continue reading. Uh, the end of chapter 4, and then we would go right on into chapter 5. And so we see a break here in our Bibles. It leads to potentially some faulty understanding of eschatology because of that break. Um, And I think when you read it in in connection together, I think it gives us a better picture of what Paul is trying to communicate. So we start in verse 13 again. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. 
But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Now, I've shared with you before, I think this entire passage is talking about one time frame. I think it's talking about Jesus coming back. I don't see it talking about a rapture and then a second coming. I see it all blurred together as one big thing that Paul's addressing. And I think you see him connect what's at the end of chapter 4 with what he just said at the beginning of chapter 5 in... Uh, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. I mean, that goes right back to what he was saying at the end of chapter 4 last week. He's addressing people that die before Jesus comes back. He's addressing people that are going to be alive when Jesus comes back. And when we look at that last week in chapter 4, then we come to chapter 5 and he gives us some instruction about the day of the Lord. And a lot of people want to say, oh, this is Different than what was going on in chapter 4. It's good news in chapter 4, it's bad news in chapter 5, but really what we have is God addressing Paul, addressing the unbelievers and how this looks for the unbeliever. And then we see him tie it all back together at the end of this paragraph when he says, So whether we are awake, whether we live till Jesus comes back, or whether we die, which is what I'm trying to comfort you with in chapter 4, we're going to be with the Lord. And so I, I think if you read it all at one time, you read it all together, I don't think you would naturally say, oh, this, this may span many, many years when all this happens. I think I think you see it as one thing that Paul's trying to get this church to grasp. Now, I told you last week that the complexity of what we looked at in chapter 4 and, and would continue into chapter 5, the complexity of this passage is not in when it will happen, but in how the Christians should apply it daily. The struggle is not trying to figure out when all this happens. It's figuring out, how do I allow this to radically transform my life now? The purpose is to comfort, not to satisfy our curiosity. And so I think we have to approach even chapter 5 knowing Paul's not trying to uh, satisfy our appetite for knowing about the end times. He's not giving us an evening in eschatology. He's not giving us a, a conference on the book of Revelation. He's comforting people who are struggling. He's comforting people that are, that are torn up about death. They're torn up about their persecution. They're torn up about what the future looks like. And he's wanting to comfort, not simply just pass on information to satisfy their intellects. His encouragement is for the believer to make sure his feelings are always in line with his theology. His major concern, as we saw in chapter 4, is that a lack of knowledge will lead to a lack of hope. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, because when you are, you grieve like a lost person. You grieve like someone who has no hope. Then you notice the Thessalonian concerns. Last week we saw that their first concern was, what happens to our loved ones that die before Jesus comes back? What happens to our loved ones that die before Jesus comes back? And the challenge that he gave them was to be prepared for death. Be prepared for death. The Thessalonians, you know, maybe they wrote him a letter, maybe they passed on this information to Timothy who would come to visit them. 
whatever way it got to him, somehow Paul realized that these guys were uninformed about what happens to their loved ones. And they, they inquired of Paul, what happens to our, our, our friends, our loved ones that were, were here when you were here? They were here when you started the church, and now they've been passed away. Maybe they died in the persecution. We, we've looked at some of that intense persecution in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that they were going through. Maybe some of them died in that persecution. Maybe some of them have just gotten older now, and they've gotten sick, or just died of old age. And, and remember, these aren't Jewish people necessarily. They're Gentiles that come out of some, some crazy religions. And, and so they're saying, Paul, what do we believe about our loved ones? We know what the other religions believe, but what do we believe? And Paul writes in his encouragement. He says, I don't want you to grieve as someone who has no hope. I want you to, to anticipate death, to be prepared for death, uh, to recognize death from a gospel perspective. And I told you that maybe the best way to see it is that we grieve over separation from loved ones, but we grieve with the anticipation of seeing them again, just like you would grieve over uh, dropping a, a, a daughter or a son off at college. You drive up somewhere out of state, you leave your son or daughter at college, you know you won't see them for a while until there's a break. There's natural, rightful grief over saying goodbye. But the hope that causes that mom or dad not to fall into despair is the fact that I'm going to see my son or daughter again very soon. And we have to keep that connection in our minds that as we lose loved ones that are Christians, it's rightful for us to grieve. It's rightful for us to be sorrowful over the separation. But the thing that keeps us from falling into deep, dark depression, grieving like a lost person where we isolate ourselves is the fact that we know we'll see them again. And Paul gives us that discourse, um, and we'll look at it again in a minute. The second concern, which we're going to address today, what happens to those of us that survive death and live until Jesus comes back? What happens to those that, that are alive when Jesus comes back? And the challenge there is to be prepared for difficulty. Be prepared for difficulty. So be prepared for death. Recognize that Christians are going to die. Not everybody's going to make it until Jesus comes back. So anticipate death. Be prepared for death. Handle it rightly. Handle it like a Christian. And I think it's even implied, be prepared for death yourself. Anticipate that you might die before Jesus comes back. So make sure that you do go to be with the Lord. So that you do come back with the Lord. So that you are reunited with your loved ones. Be prepared for death. But now the challenge that we're going to look at today is be prepared for difficulty. And I shared with you last week, the fact is that the church will exist until Jesus comes back. The church will never go extinct. We'll never have a time period on this earth where there are no Christians. The church will last. The church will survive until Jesus comes back. And for those that do survive, they must be prepared for difficulty. The focus that Paul is trying to uh, to drill into our minds here is that whether we live or die, Jesus is our good Lord. That whether we live or die, Jesus is our good Lord. We can look death in the face and believe there is hope coming. We can look death in the face and believe there is hope coming. He spent chapter 4 trying to help them see that there's no advantage to living until Jesus comes back. That those that die still participate fully. They still get new bodies. They're still there when Jesus comes back because they come with them. Their bodies are resurrected. We're resurrected. 
There's no advantage or disadvantage. And so he's pointing us to the fact that whether we live or die, Jesus is our good Lord. We saw it last week and we'll continue this week. Studying the end times brings us some things. It brings us some things. And we saw, number one, last week that it brought us information. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, meaning that you need information. You are uninformed, and I want you to be informed with information. We said that their lack of knowledge was causing them to react wrongly to death, and it was causing them to act like unbelievers. Paul points them in the direction of seeing what God's plans are for the future. He informs them that they do not have to worry about death. Secondly, that information brought them hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, God will bring with him those who are asleep. We said that that Paul is, is showing them that belief in the resurrection, belief in something that happened in the past, gives us encouragement that what the Bible says will happen in the future will happen. That our confidence in our own resurrection lies in how confident we are about Jesus' resurrection. So I told you that really studying the end times begins with studying something that happened in the past. How, how faithful, how faithful is your mind and your heart to what happened in the past? How much faith do you have in the, in the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead? And I told you that when I was growing up, I didn't have a lot of faith. I believed it, but I didn't know that there was factual evidence to support it. I just believed it as a story that my parents told me, and I, and I hoped that what they were telling me was true. But now that I've gotten older, I've devoted time to studying what uh, even secular evidence has to say about what happened to Jesus' body. And to me, it would take a great more deal of faith to believe that he didn't come back from the dead. So I've got a, I've got a rock solid assurance about the resurrection of Jesus, and that is pointing me to a greater confidence in my own future resurrection. And that's the argument that Paul makes here. He says, look to the past to receive confidence for the future. Then we saw clarity. Paul does give us some details about what will happen. He doesn't give us all the details, doesn't satisfy all our curiosity, but he does give us what he does give to us what we need. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. And then he began to list things that we should be expecting to happen, that Christians will be here, that those that are alive, and I told you the church will survive, that dead Christians will rise first, that Jesus comes in authority. We talked about the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet with a shout. All those things point towards the authority that Jesus comes with. That Christians will be united in the air. And then we said that whole passage climaxes not with telling us where we go for eternity, but who we spend eternity with. That the climax is that we get Jesus. We're with Jesus, our Lord, forever. Doesn't tell us if we go to heaven to confirm the rapture theory doesn't tell us that we come to earth to confirm the, the post-tribulational view of the end times. doesn't tell us. Silent about it. It just says that we go into the air and we're with the Lord forever. And the point of emphasis is that it doesn't matter where we go. It's who we're with that matters to Paul. That's the source of the hope and comfort. He doesn't want to comfort these people with geography. He wants to comfort them with the relationship that they have with the sovereign ruler of this universe. And whatever happens in the future is fine because we're always with him. Wherever we go, whatever we do, wherever, you know, whatever happens, however it gets finished getting laid out, doesn't matter because we're right there with the one who's controlling all of it. 
And then we said, fourthly, that all these things bring to us an ultimate comfort. He says, encourage one another with these words. That we're to find comfort, we're to seek to comfort others. I told you that grieving like a lost person is thinking that you're the only one that's feeling sorry about this. That you're the only one that experienced loss. That every time a loved one dies, multiple people feel grief about it. So it's right for for Toby to be sad if someone close to him that's a Christian dies. But it's not like he's the only one that's experiencing those feelings. So he has a responsibility, according to Paul, to encourage other Christians that are hurting with these words. That reuniting with these people will happen. So we find comfort, we share comfort. But then I lastly challenged you last week to anticipate comfort. Will we be actively sharing the gospel so that when we attend funerals, we do have hope of seeing these people again? Because this passage has no comfort, no hope for our loved ones that are lost. He doesn't offer any hope or comfort for how to deal with losing someone that's, that's not a Christian. This is about losing people that are Christians. So, will we seek to make sure that this verse applies to the funerals of people that we're closest to? Will we share the gospel? Will we be actively seeking to draw people to the kingdom so that we can find the hope that these verses offer to us? And then we come to number five today. Studying the end times brings preparedness. It brings preparedness. Now, I read to you verses 1 through 11 in chapter 5. I would love to teach you all of those verses today. Um, unfortunately, I think there's just a little too much there to try to cover in one week. And so we're going to break it up and just cover through verse 5 today. So let's look at that again. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Right off the bat, you should be able to see a big difference between the beginning of chapter 5 and the beginning of that last part of chapter 4. At the beginning of the last part of chapter 4, they are uninformed about something. Brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. Here's new information that you do not have. Chapter 5, verse 1, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you are already fully aware. Paul's recapping stuff that he's already taught them. Now we said that Paul obviously had already taught them about eschatology, even though they're baby Christians, we typically think eschatology is for the adult Christians, not for the new Christians. But that within six months, he had already given them a lot of information about the future. And obviously this was part of it. Because he says, you don't need me to write to you about this. I've already taught you about this. You're already fully aware of this. But he's going to, for their own sake and for their own comfort, recap some of this. And before we really get into this text, I want to draw your attention to verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord. This is a, a term or a phrase in the New Testament that is most oftentimes applied to the second coming of Jesus. 
It's an Old Testament phrase. It's an Old Testament phrase, the day of the Lord. In, in the Old Testament context, was understood to be um, a time when God specifically steps into history to intervene. It's a time when God specifically steps into history to intervene. As I was studying this, I was, I was frustrated at myself because I took an Old Testament background class in undergrad, and I took an Old Testament prophets class in seminary. And because I was just dumb, um, I didn't pay attention to real good in those classes. I, I had the classes with Rob. Um, for whatever reason, we were always tired when we went to this class. One of them was in the morning, one of them was in the afternoon, so it wasn't really even the time of day that was the issue. Um, I remember we always had to have a mountain dude when we went to these classes because it was at times dry and boring. And, and I really hated the fact that I didn't pay attention because I felt like I could have drawn more from this passage had I listened. Because in one of those classes, we had a, we had a Old Testament book that was about this big, and, and it, it was a, uh, an overview of each book of the Old Testament. And basically, when we got into the prophet section, he taught us that each one of the prophets is discussing a day of the Lord on a group of people. So each one of the Old Testament major minor prophets, just about all of them are dealing with day of the Lord on somebody. Whether it's Israel, whether it's the Ninevites, different groups of people that have to experience what is known as the day of the Lord. It's when God specifically intervenes in history and does some type of work. Now we know that God's in control of all of history. It's not that, that God is absent and, and uninvolved and disconnected um, and then sometimes he jumps in and does something. Day of the Lord that was viewed as more of a specific stepping into history. Meaning that we experience consequences of our sins a lot of times just naturally. Right? Like if I'm a liar... Um, I'm going to have broken relationships a lot of times. People are going to not trust me. God doesn't necessarily have to step in and make people not trust me and make my relationships go bad. This is kind of a natural consequence of my sin. But in the Old Testament, there were specific times, and we know that it would be day of the Lord because God told us. It's different than uh, Jerry Falwell or some of these other guys standing up and saying, well, the reason that this happened is because we have homosexuals in our country. You know, day of the Lord on America because we tolerate this sin. There may be some truth to some of that. We may get Hurricane Katrina because that area of our country was, was debased in sin. But because we don't have special revelation, I think it's dangerous to say that God sent Hurricane Katrina to punish this certain sin in America. In the Old Testament, we do know that God sent certain things to punish certain sins. And we can say that confidently because God hopes. He says, hey, I'm about to do this because you're doing this. So we know that God does do that type of thing. It's dangerous to apply it to God when he hasn't told us that's what he's doing. Job's friends got in trouble for that, remember? Job's friends said, hey, God's probably doing this because you must have some type of sin in your life. And God says, don't talk bad about me. Don't tell people that I'm doing things that I haven't told you I'm doing. So, so there's the warning there in Scripture to be very careful about applying things like the day of the Lord when God didn't intend for it to But in the Old Testament, we do have specific chapters where prophets warn that if, if things don't change, 
day of the Lord is coming. And it was a time when God would specifically intervene. From a Jewish perspective, it, it was it had like a an initial fulfillment that pointed to like a future fulfillment. And the future big day of the Lord meant that this present age is shattered and the new age, the, the, the future age, is ushered in. So every time they had like little days of the Lord, it was a, a, a foreshadowing of the big day of the Lord where everything that we know now is done away with and everything's made new. Now we understand that major day of the Lord to be the second coming of Jesus. So when he says, you know, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, he's pointing us towards that second coming. In the Old Testament, um, it always carried the idea of judging enemies, delivering his people, and establishing his kingdom. There was always hope offered in the midst of the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord, good for some people, bad for others. I want to read to you a passage from the Old Testament. And I would venture to say that if I didn't tell you it was from the Old Testament, you might, if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, wonder if maybe this was from the book of Revelation. In Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2, we have Day of the Lord. Day of the Lord discussion. This was a Day of the Lord warning on... um, I believe it was on the, uh, the kingdom of Judah. Remember the, the Israelite kingdom gets split in two after Solomon. We have Israel and Judah. I believe this is day of the Lord on Judah. It says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people. Their life has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Part of this day of the Lord was the promise that locusts were going to come and destroy the land. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. There's that same mindset. The day of the Lord comes like a thief. It came like a thief a lot of times in the Old Testament as well. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? It's a very destructive scene. This army is going to come in and bring judgment. It's going to be destructive. It's going to be uh, far-reaching. Sin has happened, and God is intervening and bringing day of the Lord. It comes like a thief. 
It comes unexpectedly. It devastates. Who can endure it? We see that same perspective in 1 Thessalonians 5, right? That the, the day of the Lord comes like a thief. Who can escape it is what the verse says, basically. Who can, who can escape the day of the Lord? I'm grateful for verse 12 in Joel chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Joel offers hope in the midst of the day of the Lord. He says, this destruction is coming, yet the Lord says, repent. Yet the Lord says, repent, and hope is offered to those that do. Now, if you skip down in this chapter, we come to verse 28. Remember, day of the Lord, kind of a, an initial fulfillment, future fulfillment. Verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Does anybody know where this is quoted in the New Testament? <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Holy Spirit's about to come. This is, this is what Peter quotes. He quotes from Joel. Remember, divine hermeneutic. When does this happen? Acts chapter 2. But that's when it happens because the Holy Spirit tells us that through the mouth of Peter. But if you keep reading in this passage, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now we have future day of the Lord, the, the big day of the Lord. We've read this in the New Testament, sun being darkened, moon turning to blood, like lots of crazy stuff happening. How much of that is real and how much of that is pictorial we don't know verse 32 it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved for in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls that's the comfort that comes from day of the Lord that yes day of the Lord is coming God will intervene he will step down he will devastate this present age. He will bring retribution and judgment on sin. But for those that repent, for those that repent, there is hope that is offered that they will be spared from day of the Lord. So we've seen kind of some Old Testament context here for what the day of the Lord is. We see in 1 Thessalonians 5 now that Paul is saying, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How do we prepare for this? How do we prepare for this? The Thessalonians, Thessalonians had an answer for it. The Thessalonian answer was, um, could you give us a date for when this is going to happen? Can you tell us when this is going to happen? So that their answer was, give us a date and we'll make sure we're prepared. If you could just uh, write back to us, Paul, tell us when this whole day of the Lord, Jesus coming back stuff is going to happen. We'll put that on our calendars, and we will make sure that when that happens, we are ready for it. Give us a date, Paul, and we'll be ready. This idea was 
was presented to Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you shall, you see all these, do you not truly, I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now Jesus proceeds to, to tell them some things that will be going on. He doesn't, he doesn't disclose when this will happen. He does give them an idea of some things that will be going on, but we've kind of looked at this before and said that, yep, these things have been kind of going on since Jesus left. Wars and rumors of wars and tribulations and persecutions. So I think Jesus offers encouragement in saying that, hey, look for Jesus' return, look for my return when you see these type of things happening. And it's a message to every generation. But the Thessalonians say, Paul, if you could help us out, uh, just give us a time frame. That'll help us be prepared. And we know from Scripture there's not, there's not a time frame. Like, we're not told a date. We're, we're not given a specific indication. Why do you think that is? Why, why does God not communicate to us the when of something that's so important? Why does God choose not to do that? Maybe we wait until the last minute to do anything. Um, if I knew that I didn't have to get right with God until December 12th of this year, then, then I would wait. Maybe I'd give myself a couple of weeks before that just in case I didn't misunderstand something. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the big thing. Also, think of the pandemonium that it would cause if we knew from Scripture that day. Not if some crazy guy stood up and said, Hey, I think Jesus is coming back. Here's 88 reasons why he's coming back in 1988. Oh, I was wrong. Here's why he's coming back in 89. Here's why he's coming back in 91 and so on. We just keep putting my book out and keep buying it so I can keep living in my big house situation. Like some people take that guy for serious. Some people are dumb enough to sell all their stuff. But for the most part, pandemonium doesn't set in because nobody really believes that guy. Right? If we really had solid evidence that Jesus is coming back on December 12th, we wouldn't be making movies about it. Like, you have, you have mass pandemonium coming up. Now, you're going to have, and you may, and I think this is an appropriate message, because you may interact with people at work or at school or in your family that are going to ask questions about December 12th. It's December 12th, right? The, the mind calendar is much later. Okay. December 21st? December? I mean, it's going to happen in December, right? Uh, I remember last year, when that guy said it was the, the rapture was happening in May and then in the world was happening such such. Uh, I had a guy at faith that I was you know sharing the gospel with, trying to get him to understand. Got me in texting me frantically the night before the rapture was supposed to happen. What do I need to do? I'm, I'm freaking out. Like, is this really going to happen? Blah, 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 blah. That's an example of a guy who didn't care until the date was, was on the brink of happening. That's what we would have if Scripture told us when Jesus is coming back. You'd have people wait until the night before to say, what are you going to do? What's the gospel? What's obeying the gospel? So God says, no, I'm not giving you dates. Paul says, I'm not going to write to you about this because you're fully aware that it comes like a thief in the night. There is no date for me to give you. Instead, Paul's answer is be faithful like today is the day. Be faithful like today is the day. 
chapter 1, 6, and 7. Uh, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now I love what Jesus says next. I love what Jesus says next. These disciples are saying, uh, Could you give us a date? Could you tell us when this is going to happen? When are you going to restore the kingdom? Is it now? Is it soon? When's it going to be? Jesus says, It's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. God set that on his own authority. It's not for you to know. And then the very next thing, it's not that Jesus shifts uh, thoughts here. It's not that he changes the subject. He tells them what to do in light of not knowing. Here's what you can do. You're not going to know the day. Here's what you can do. You'll see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Says Jesus, as though Jesus says, hey, quit worrying about when I'm coming back. Quit worrying about when the end's going to happen. Just make disciples. Just act like today's the day. Work on bringing the kingdom here. If you're so concerned about when the kingdom's going to happen, if you're so concerned about when everything's going to be like it's supposed to be, then work for it. Work for it. Share the gospel. Make disciples. That's Jesus' response to the same question. Paul says, I don't need to write to you about this. You already know what you need to know. Now let's kind of break this down real quick. Some things that we can know about the day of the Lord and the second coming. First thing you need to notice, the timing of Jesus' return is unprofitable information for us. The timing of Jesus' return is unprofitable information for us. The knowledge that we have about the when, when's this going to happen, is sufficient. Jesus gave us some things to be looking for. He gave us some indications that don't let this thing overly alarm you. What Jesus gave us about when he's coming back is all we need. It's all we need. Scripture tells us what you have in these 66 books is, is all you need for life and godliness. So we can assume that the date of when Jesus is coming back is unprofitable. It's unprofitable. And we've listed a couple of reasons. It would cause pandemonium, and it would cause people to wait until the, the last moment. Like a student that waits until the night before to study for a test. I wish in schools that we could just tell them to always be ready for a test. Always be ready for a quiz. Because that would teach students to know the information and not cram the information and then forget it right after the test. If you always had to live in, in light of knowing that I could have a test today over this information... You're studying every day. You're preparing every day, and that information would stick. What we enable our students in school to do is to learn information and forget information in a matter of 24 hours. My, my student's favorite question when I hand them a worksheet, does this count for a grade? And I say, well, clearly you're asking because it determines how much effort you're going to put onto this worksheet, right? Because if it doesn't count for a grade, you're just going to scribble some stuff down and turn it in. If it does count for a grade, you're going to put your heart and soul into it, hopefully. Paul's saying, I'm not going to tell you so that you can run around at the very last minute and get ready for this. You prepare every day like it counts. You prepare every day like it's the day of the Lord. This was information that the Thessalonians had already known. Paul shoots down their further curiosity. He had already taught them about this. If Paul didn't know, we're not going to know. If Jesus didn't know when he was on this earth... We're not going to know. 
So movies like The Omega Code and, and some of these other things about finding secret messages in the Bible that tell us when this stuff happens, it's not profitable. It's not necessary. Paul couldn't figure it out. Jesus didn't know it at the time. We're not going to know it. Okay? Um, and I think ultimately the fact that that what he said in chapter 4, that dying doesn't give a disadvantage to the end times, it negates really needing to know the timing. I think that the Thessalonians wanted to know, when is Jesus coming back? Because it's kind of motivated out of fear of people that die don't get to participate. Now that they have a correct understanding of death, that loved ones are there at the second coming, they get new bodies, it kind of negates the need for a date, because if you die, you're still okay. The Thessalonians wanted to know because it was like, how much longer do I need to live to make sure I participate in this? Paul says, oh, dead people participate in this too. So now you can quit worrying about if you're going to live long enough because dead and alive participate in the day of the Lord. So the timing is unprofitable. Secondly, the timing of Jesus' return will be unexpected. The timing of Jesus' return will be unexpected. The return of Jesus will be a surprise, like a thief coming in the night. No warning, hard to anticipate. Anybody ever had somebody break into their house before? Anybody ever had to experience that? You have? Anybody else? This would be a great time for me to share a story about how it happened to me, but it's never happened to me either. Um, I've heard of people that have had that happen. Um, I've laid in bed wondering if it's happening, um, but I've never actually had anybody... Uh, break into my house and, and, and rob me. But, but the analogy is there that if, and Jesus alludes to this too, if, if you knew when the thief was coming, you would certainly stay up that night with a gun in your hand and be waiting at the door for them when they came in. The thief makes his living off of coming unexpectedly. He, he makes his living off of the surprise. And, and Paul's saying here that's what Jesus' return is going to be like. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to come when you don't expect it, when you're not thinking about it, when you're not ready for it. So it's not probably happening in December this year because everybody's going to be looking for it. And Jesus, Jesus affirms the same idea that he comes like a thief. We're told in Scripture to always be ready for the thief. In Matthew 24, we'll try to get through these real quick. Matthew 24, verse 42. Just so you can kind of see this teaching in, in the other parts of Scripture. Therefore, stay away, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed away and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Second Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord comes like a thief, Peter says. Revelation 3.3 Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come. Against you. Revelation 16 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked, 
and be seen, exposed. Here we're told that part of the way we prepare for the thief is that we keep our clothes on. We keep our clothes on so they're not found to be naked. Now, if you want to jot these verses down, we get an understanding of why he's telling us to keep our clothes on. Uh, Revelation 3.18, Revelation 6.11, Revelation 3.18, Revelation 6.11, Revelation 7.14. All those allude to the type of clothing that we're to have on when Jesus comes back. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We know from scripture that what we're to be clothed in when Jesus comes back is his righteousness. That's what we gain in salvation. When we, we repent of our sins and our faith and trust in the work of Christ, we get His righteousness. It's the doctrine of imputation. It's us turning our sin, our garments of sin, in. And Jesus wears those on the cross when He endures God's wrath. And He exchanges, uh, what we get in Him, He exchanges back to us garments of, of purity and righteousness. White garments they're shown to be in the book of Revelation. The martyrs are clothed in these. They cleanse them with the blood of Christ. The way that we prepare for the thief is we stay awake, clothed in garments of salvation, so that we are prepared when Jesus comes back. Be always ready for the thief. Number three. While the timing is uncertain, the return of Jesus is certain. The timing is uncertain. But the return is definitely certain. Paul has given us two analogies of, of the unexpectedness of the return, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The return of Jesus is as certain as a pregnant woman going into delivery. The analogy shifts a little bit and it communicates something else about the return. Yes, the return is unexpected. Yes, it comes like a thief in the night. But there's a certainty to it. You don't know what the thief's going to bring into your house. Do you? I mean, we all kind of admit, except for Anna, that we've never had that happen. And, and some of us may never have that happen. We're not preparing for something that might happen. We're preparing for something that will happen. The return of Jesus is as certain as a woman who is pregnant going into labor. There's still that element of when's it going to happen. I know that uh, Tyson and Sarah experienced this, Laura and I experienced this, and we came down to the end, it was like, is it going to be today? Is it going to be today? Let's go walking. Is it going to be today? And we tried to we tried to make it happen on our timetable. Like, hey, this would be a great time. Like, really feeling refreshed. Like, let's go do it now. Um, there was still an unexpectedness to it. Like, we didn't know. But there was something very certain that it can't be much longer. Like, you're not going to be able to hold them in much longer. So there's, there's two aspects here that, yes, it comes unexpectedly, but don't get lost in thinking that it may not happen, like a thief may not come. 
it happens just as certain as a woman who is pregnant will go into labor. It's a necessary thing that will definitely happen. It's assured of happening. And Paul wants us to make sure that we see that. There will be no escape. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. It was the same picture we had in Joel chapter 2. But the day of the Lord comes, who escapes? Only those that are clothed in righteousness. And this, this again kind of goes back to why I have a hard time seeing a millennial reign that happens after the day of the Lord. Revelation 19, the day of the Lord is destructive. I mean, it comes and it devastates and it wipes out and the birds are feasting on the flesh of man. Paul says nobody escapes it. But what happened to Christians? Maybe they go into the millennial reign. No, because they all get resurrected and they all meet the Lord in the air. And I have a hard time seeing that anybody's left. Because Paul tells me nobody's going to escape. Paul doesn't say, day of the Lord is going to come, and some people might be able to live through this devastation, but for most of you, you're going to perish in it. I mean, I mean, what does that communicate about day of the Lord, that it, that, it, that it doesn't really follow through with what it said it was going to do? Paul says, there's no escape from this. It comes like a thief, it comes like labor pains, and there will not be an escape for those that are unprepared. Nobody, nobody makes it through this, is what Paul says. He uses the double negative, not in the way that our language uses it, meaning that it cancels out and it makes a positive. He says, none escape. No, not anyone. Like, in case you misunderstood me, like, none escape. Seriously, nobody escapes, is what Paul says. Like, double emphasis there. Like, don't think that you're going to be able to slide under a rock and miss this. Don't think you can be a child of darkness, child of the night. Don't think you can be unprepared for the thief and hide under your bed and him come in and do his thing and walk out and then you say, Ooh, dodge that bullet. That was a close one. Glad he didn't catch me in my bed. Glad I was able to slip underneath my bed and he missed me. No escape. Nobody escapes. Nobody at all, is what Paul says. It's devastating, the day of the Lord. Only Christians can escape. The comfort is that God is in control. His plans happen. Nothing gets past Him. And I wrote down in my notes, no bad guys escape. No bad guys escape. Isn't that like, seems like every movie that we watch, you've always got that fear of, is the bad guy done? Like, did we catch everybody? Is there going to be a sequel because somebody got away? That doesn't happen on Day of the Lord. None of the bad guys get away. None of them escape. None of them dodge it. The all-sovereign, all-knowing, omnipresent, omnipotent God shows up and brings devastation on the Day of the Lord. And He brings hope and escape to those that are called children of light. Next few notes, the last few things. Timing is, the information is unprofitable. The timing is unexpected. While the timing is uncertain, the return is very certain. Number four, many will be unprepared for his return. 
This is another reason why I can't believe in postmillennialism. That everybody eventually gets saved and, and the world is, is transformed by the gospel and then Jesus comes back. Because the indication here is that there's a lot of people who aren't prepared for it. There's a lot of people who haven't turned their faith to Christ. It says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Many will find safety and security in this life prior to the return of Jesus. It's almost as though the mindset is, even if a thief is coming, we are safe. There's no threat to us. I don't think this is trying to say that there's going to be world peace. Some people would take this to say that, oh, this is absolutely talking about Antichrist. One big world government. Everybody's united. We're all using the same currency. I mean, you see, that, that kind of speculation goes far deeper than what Paul's trying to talk about here. I think the bigger picture is that these people are saying, I'm fine. I'm okay. I, I don't have any reason to fear some Jesus coming back. There's peace and security that they find in the midst of their sin. That's the peace and security that they're, that they're holding on to. It's that. Let's look at it. Second Peter. Um, Second Peter 3. I think this is what the attitude is going on here in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's the same in 2 Peter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and earth now exist, restored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, the mindset there is the same mindset before the flood. We are okay. We are okay. We're okay in our sin. Where is this coming? Where is the promise of his coming? Things have been continuing just like they always have. Nobody's experiencing divine wrath. Nobody's experiencing divine punishment for the choices they're making. We're fine. We're good. Peace. Security. There is no thief. The house is fine. We don't need a security system. We don't need to be prepared. It's not coming. That's the mindset of these people. It's the mindset of the lost. That they're fine in their sin. There's no need to repent. There's no need to take serious the warnings. They misunderstand God's delay. They misunderstand it for approval. When it's really meant to draw to repentance. It's God's grace that he hasn't come back yet, allowing others to come to salvation. We know that true peace comes from the gospel, not from a lack of judgment on our sin. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace that we need to be concerned about 
is the peace that we experience on the day of the Lord. On the day of the Lord. As we're going to see next week, we have to be prepared for difficulty in waiting for Jesus to come back. Because we're the oddballs. We're the odd man out. We're the children of light, and darkness is all around us. So we have to deal with being excluded. We have to deal with being separated from the norm. That's difficult at times. It's difficult to live in a a world that is fallen, that's dark, that's part of the night. It's difficult to prepare for the thief when nobody else is. We have to be careful that we don't allow the cries of peace and security from our friends to lull us to sleep. The Bible says to stay awake, to be prepared, even when others are sleeping, even when others are drunk. We must not allow these cries to lull us to sleep. A lack of urgency around us must not decrease our own urgency. And then lastly, we can be prepared for His return. Many will be unprepared, but we can be prepared. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we part of the light, part of the day, or are we part of darkness, part of the night? In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, John the Baptist's daddy, is talking. Remember, he wasn't allowed to talk for a while because he had a lack of faith in God. He comes back strong, stronger than ever, and has a good word to say in verse 76. Zechariah says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, the one who brings the sunrise, the one who who ushers in the light, the one who causes from darkness into light. And that's what Paul says is necessary for us to escape this devastation of day of the Lord. He says, here's what's coming, sudden destruction, but in verse 4, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Preparing for the day of the Lord means getting on the right side. Preparing means getting on the right side. John 12, 27. Are we in the light or are we in the dark? In John twelve twenty seven, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is Jesus praying and, and teaching. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Maybe an allusion to the binding of Satan. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. 
We have a responsibility to prepare for the day of the Lord by making sure that we've transferred from darkness to light. 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 4. In their case, the God of this world, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then in Colossians 1. And so from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Preparing means getting on the right side. Preparing also means staying on the right side. Staying on the right side. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Specifically instructions about marriage. But it tells us to, to stay away from those that are in darkness. Specifically, don't date them and don't marry them. That light and darkness cannot be in fellowship with each other. Ephesians 5, 3-14, it describes the fruit of light and the fruit of darkness, and it talks about how they should not be intermingled. Encouragement that we're to live like children of light. But then there's some really strong warnings, and I want to close with this, in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 9. Some really strong warnings about staying on the right side. Staying in the light. Hebrews 3, 12-14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called the day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, or we have been saved, if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The author of Hebrews says, you're saved, you've been saved if you make it. You're saved if you endure to the end. Now he's not teaching that if you don't endure to the end, that you lose your salvation. He's teaching that if you don't endure to the end, you were never saved. Never saved. The picture is the same in Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for them, for him. People that are enduring. Jesus comes back for people who are looking for him. For people that are, that are still following Christ. Not for people that, that follow Christ until their late teenage years and then walk away from the faith. Those people were never saved, is what Hebrews says. This is the same thing in Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, 
And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. Author of Hebrews says, if you get the gospel, if you say you respond to the gospel, but you continue to live in sin, then there is no sacrifice for your sins. First John, there's a radical change if you're a Christian, and there's not if you're not a Christian. The warning is built in there so that real Christians will persevere and endure. The warning is built in to keep real Christians persevering. Yes, we're saved. Yes, we have eternal security. No, we can't lose our salvation. But part of the way that we remain saved is the Holy Spirit empowers us to make it to the end. We hold fast to that confession. We don't walk away from the faith. And when people start walking away from the faith, we go get them. Because we encourage one another, we exhort one another, we meet together regularly so that nobody falls away due to hardness of their own sin. We save them from their sin. They've been saved by Jesus and we go continually helping them be saved by bringing them out of their sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't let them wander away in their sin. I love how, how sure Paul seems to be of these guys' salvation. He says, you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light. I think this goes back to what he said in chapter 1, the whole way we started this book off. Remember he said, we are confident that God has chosen you for salvation, and here's all the reasons why. You responded to the gospel. The gospel radically changed your life. So Paul can now say, you guys shouldn't be surprised like a thief because you're saved. I know you're saved. I have confidence in your salvation because I've seen the fruit of your salvation. Paul's not threatening them with the day of the Lord. He's encouraging them. Hey, it's going to come like a thief and it's going to bring devastation, but not to you. Not to you because you're children of the light. You're children of the day. It won't surprise you like a thief. The application, prepare for the unexpected. Prepare for the unexpected. It shouldn't surprise us like a thief. Paul wants them to know Jesus, not a date. Know Jesus, not a certain date. Be surprised intellectually, not ethically. We'll be surprised when it actually happens, but we don't have to be caught off guard. I've used the illustration before. It's kind of like what it's like to hunt. There's a lot of times when, when me and Chris Henson, we go hunting and we don't see anything. We spend hours and hours in the tree and nothing walks by. But we are prepared. We are prepared for the unexpected. It's always a, a thrill when a deer walks out. But I've never fallen out of a tree stand and said, Whoa! Like, I wasn't expecting the deer to come out. No, I'm there anticipating it. There's days that I don't see the deer. Chris Simpson went years and years and years and years and years and years without seeing a male deer walk out. And then last year, the unexpected happened. And the buck walked out. And Chris was prepared with his gun. Had to set his book down because he wasn't paying attention, but he was prepared because his gun was in his lap. And he shot the deer. He was prepared for something that was considered unexpected. We would talk every hunting season. Chris, maybe, maybe this is the year you see that buck. Nah, it's not going to be this year. But he didn't fully believe that because he always went to the stand and he always went with the gun. That's how we prepare for the unexpected with Jesus. We prepare like it could happen any day. Maybe realizing that it's probably not right now. There's probably still some things that God has intentions of doing. But if it were to happen today, 
it wouldn't be totally blowing me away unexpected. We prepare for the unexpected. We encourage each other to remain prepared. Secondly, we encourage each other to remain prepared. And then lastly, we rest in the certainty and be content with the uncertainty. Rest in the certainty. Jesus is coming. Dead Christians are coming back. We're going to meet Jesus. We're going to be with him forever. Be content with the fact that we don't know when all that's going to happen and we don't have all the details. We have the important stuff. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I'm going to close this in prayer and then Tyson is going to come to lead us in a song. Before we leave today, we're going to worship together. Worship and cling to the hope that Jesus is coming back. Praying that that will radically transform the way we go about our week. We will find the comfort, hope, and encouragement that we need. We will pass that on to others. We will recognize that, that there are a lot of people here in Sonoy and in the areas that you come from. In your neighborhood, there are plenty of people who, as of today, are unprepared. As of today, they're unprepared, which means we need to prepare them. We know the thief is coming. We don't know when, but we know he's coming. Just like a childbearing mom is going to go into labor. We know it's coming. We have the responsibility to warn others. To use the delay to draw others to repentance. So I'm going to pray Tyson's going to come. And then after Tyson leads us in a time of song, I want to lead us in... Um, an important time for our church, some, some church business that we want to handle together um, before we dismiss today. Let's pray. God, once again, we praise you and thank you for this word. God, I'm thankful that you have not left us uninformed about the future. That you've given us knowledge that we need. You've given us knowledge that we can be prepared for your coming. God, we're thankful for what day of the Lord means. That you are coming to make everything right. That you're coming in your justice to bring what's right to this world. And God, I pray that we would use that delay to draw others to you. To draw people out of darkness to light. So that the destruction that comes from the day of the Lord will be minimized. That the amount of people who have to endure it will be minimized. God, I pray that as we continue to study chapter 5 together, that we would learn what it means to be prepared, to be awake, to be sober, to be on the lookout. How we can live rightly in light of the certainty that you are returning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.